This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. Patients with irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, can have many uncomfortable symptoms. Thankfully, these patients may benefit from dietary modifications, drugs for symptom control, and psychological therapies. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchloni, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. To tell us more about care of patients with IBS, I've reached one of the authors of a review article published in CMAJ. Dr. Adam Farmer is a UK-based gastroenterologist, senior lecturer, and clinical director of specialised medicine at the Royal Stoke University Hospital in Staffordshire, United Kingdom. Thanks for speaking with me today, Adam. Thanks, Neil. It's a great pleasure to uh, join you on the podcast. To start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in irritable bowel syndrome? Sure. So I'm a, a practicing um, a gastroenterologist in, in the UK, and, and some of my academic interest is around the uh, pathophysiology and management of irritable bowel syndrome, which you know accounts for a huge burden of work in secondary care gastroenterology and trying to improve the uh, outcomes and uh, quality of life for these kind of patients. And you also have a very active research portfolio in this condition as well. Yes, both across the basic science of irritable bowel syndrome, but also in terms of uh, clinical trials of uh, new pharmacotherapeutic agents. Great. So it makes you uh, a really well-placed author to write the review article and for us to speak to today. So thank you. What is IBS and how well understood is the condition by family doctors, specialists and patients? So irritable bowel syndrome um, can be thought of as as a disorder of uh, how the brain and the gut interact. And we used to call these disorders the functional gastrointestinal disorders. But IBS is largely characterized by um, an ABC, really. So that would be A for abdominal pain, B for bloating, and then C, some change in frequency or or form of of bowel habit. As I I mentioned, IBS accounts for a huge burden of work, uh, particularly in secondary care, with approximately 40% of uh, new patient referrals um, in the UK. Although we have a a good appreciation of the pathophysiology of irritable bowel syndrome, it is as yet uh, incompletely uh, understood, but it's thought to be as I said, a disorder of communication within between the gut and the brain. So what we refer to as the gut-brain axis. And this is a bi-directional circuit of uh, communication between the central nervous system and the enteric nervous system in the gut, which can therefore give rise to uh, bothersome symptoms. And do you find that our understanding of IBS has significantly improved over the years? Or what research has led us to our understanding of where we are now? So our understanding has, I think, significantly uh, improved over the over the recent past. Um, if you go back to the sort of first descriptions in the literature in the uh, 40s and 50s, it used to be called nervous colitis or or spastic colon, and and we certainly dropped the term uh, colitis because there's no demonstrable inflammation with within the gut. But there's an increasing appreciation of a number of factors that uh, influence. Um, 
the pathophysiology of IBS, for example, there are clear personality factors, there's genetic components, um, changes in the bugs in the gut, what we refer to as the as the microbiome. And indeed, IBS can also occur after a uh, episode of, of gastroenteritis. Uh, so enteric infections as well can predispose to uh, long-term symptoms consistent with IBS. And with a better understanding of IBS, have we seen a change in incidence or prevalence rates uh, for how often people present with IBS in Canada or internationally? So the prevalence rates vary uh, considerably depending on, on what definition uh, one uses uh, for the disorder. The, the current definition that we have is based on the that that's come from the multinational uh, Rome Foundation. So the Rome Foundation meets every 10 years or so to review the literature uh, in that period uh, that's gone before and uh, make changes to the definition of, of IBS. We're currently on the fourth iteration of the the Rome Foundation, um, which again defines the disorder of, of IBS. So really, depending on the definition, the rates vary. So with respect to the latest data, it suggests that approximately 3.7% of male Canadians suffer with the disorder and 7.8% of female uh, Canadians with a peak incidence, really in early adult life, ranging from 18 to, to 34. But prevalence rates through, um, through the rest of the world, we have a similar rate uh, within within the UK, but probably a little bit higher in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, for example. And do we have a good understanding of why those prevalence rates may differ according to different countries or why they may say the same across similar countries? So again, I'll, I'll go back to it depends really on the on the definition uh, one uses. Those figures that I quoted are based on the on the Rome 4 criteria. But again, I think around differences in terms of how patients present and the risk factors that they're exposed to, particularly thinking of sort of gastroenteritis type uh, symptoms. And are there are there any are there different classifications of irritable bowel syndrome, or is there only one type? So there are a number of um, different subcategories of, of irritable bowel syndrome. So IBS is a, is, is a symptom uh, based uh, diagnosis. So you have to have recurrent abdominal pain for at least a day a week for for three months. And then two or more of the following, really, that pain is in some way related to defecation and is associated with a change in frequency uh, or appearance of the of the stool. So usefully, we can begin to uh, subcategorize IBS into into four subtypes, which are based on the uh, most predominant uh, bowel habit. So the first is IBS with, with constipation. The second, IBS with diarrhea. There are some patients who cycle uh, between, between the two, which we, which we refer to as IBS mixed. And then there's a very small proportion of patients who don't quite fit into one of those three aforementioned uh, categories, which we, we classify as IBS unclassified. Um, but IBSD is probably the most frequent uh, subtype, accounts for approximately uh, 40% of patients. Interestingly, somewhat more common in men than women, but clearly there are considerable geographic and ethnic differences, whereas IBSC tends to be a little bit more common in, in females than, than men. And we've talked um, already about the bi-directional uh, circuit of communication, but what do we know about other causes of IBS? So in terms of other causes of IBS, and we have to remember that the gastrointestinal tract in terms of symptoms doesn't have a very 
big vocabulary, if I can use that that term. So IBS can often masquerade as, as other disorders, and clearly there are other disorders which you would um, want to exclude before uh, making making that uh, that diagnosis. And particularly, you think about the the red flag symptoms. So, namely, a, an older patient, certainly above fifty, with uh, weight loss or, or rectal bleeding. Uh, nocturnal symptoms can often point you towards some more organic diagnosis. Uh, clearly have to think about recent uh, antibiotic use in the context of Clostridium difficile infection. And raised inflammatory markers or, or fecal calprotectin might point you towards uh, uh, inflammatory bowel disease as the cause. But actually, in real life, the, uh, diagnost- the Rome 4 diagnostic criteria um, have very good receiver operator uh, characteristic characteristics, and certainly with some targeted investigations such as a complete blood count, um, uh, ferritin B12 folate, and, and celiac serology, um, you can be um, confident in in using these uh, diagnostic criteria in in routine day to day clinical practice. So you mentioned some demographic uh, features of those who present, and and some baseline investigations. Um, which may go into the diagnosis of diagnosing your bowel syndrome from the beginning. Can you start me off with a patient who goes in to see his or her family doctor for, let's say, bothersome gastrointestinal symptoms? How does their workup start and where do you envision that kind of management taking place? I think the key uh, point to make here really is around um, taking a a detailed history um, from such a patient. So, um, the, the aspects to, to focus on really are the, 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 the length that the symptoms have, have been there. So IBS would need at least three months of, of symptoms, uh, excluding those, those red flag symptoms that I, that I mentioned earlier, and really trying to get down to what the most problematic uh, symptom is. And this can vary from, from patient, to, uh, patient to patient in the sense that some patients, it's the pain that's driving their healthcare seeking, whereas in others, whilst they still have to have pain to meet the definition, it's also the disordered bowel habit, which is uh, particularly um, problematic. When you're thinking about corroborating evidence for, for an IBS diagnosis, um, patients often have a number of extra gastrointestinal symptoms, if I can call them that. So fibromyalgia can be, can be very, very common comorbid anxiety and, and depression as well. So it's taking a very detailed history. Clearly, it's important to ascertain whether there's any initiating factors. So again, particularly thinking of a preceding episode of, of gastroenteritis or often a major life event, such as the, the loss of a, a relative or the breakdown of a relationship in itself can precipitate symptoms. Clearly, on the physical examination, this would have to be normal. And again, if, if there are abnormal findings, particularly on, on palpation of the abdomen, then that would warrant um, further appropriate uh, investigations. Similarly, with respect to those red flag symptoms, if, if they're present, then that warrants um, further, further workup. But the vast majority of uh, irritable bowel syndrome is actually managed in primary care by, by family doctors and generally managed uh, very well. The one, the patients that we see in secondary care are those that are perhaps more uh, recalcitrant to um, to standard uh, standard treatments. And when you're taking a history, do you find that family history has a role um, in diagnosing irritable bowel syndrome, or if there's any genetics at play that might be contributing? 
Yes, this is, this is a great question. So the, there is a, um, a role of, of genetics in that patients often have a, uh, a relative who, who suffers with, with irritable bowel syndrome. I think there are a number of uh, very interesting uh, studies really to come out from uh, Rona Levy in, in the US looking at um, um, concordance rates amongst twins and it's much higher. Uh, IBS concordance rates in, in, in identical twins rather than non-identical twins. Uh, similarly, uh, there's, there's some really nice uh, genome-wide association uh, studies from uh, the European group of Beata uh, Niesler, which, which shows quite nicely that there are a number of uh, genetic associations with, with IBS, uh, particularly one locus has been identified, that 7P22.1, which has a number of uh, genes with, within it, um, uh, particularly the KDELR2 gene and the GRID2IP gene, which have shown consistent risk effects for, for IBS itself. So certainly these studies in, in combination do suggest there is a, a genetic component, but also as well around illness behavior as well, that if, if a parent has, has IBS and, and the child sees the parent suffering with IBS type symptoms, and that itself is an independent uh, risk factor for the development of the disorder. It's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so if you were to see a patient with complex IBS present to you in secondary care, would you have any expectation of what um, blood or supplementary investigation should be done by that point in time? Or given the fact that the large majority of these investigations will be normal, a referral without any further workup is often fine. I think some targeted uh, testing can be can be very useful. IBS remains a, a clinical diagnosis, but I think some, some targeted tests, uh, particularly a, a complete blood count, um, inflammatory markers, uh, hematinics and celiac serology uh, are, are very useful. Um, again, with the increased availability of, of fecal calprotectin, uh, a normal fecal calprotectin would suggest that inflammatory bowel disease is, is not the cause of, of the symptoms. So I think those sort of investigations to start with as the patient moves from primary and secondary care, uh, from primary care to secondary care can be, can be very helpful to the secondary care uh, clinician. Clearly, one has to um, evaluate uh, each individual patient on that basis and then one may need to think about some more invasive tests if, if appropriate. I think it is worth uh, mentioning that um, a, a third of patients who would meet the criteria for irritable bowel syndrome with, with diarrhea in actuality have a disorder called bile acid diarrhea. In the UK we have access to, uh, to CCAT testing to, to delineate that but you can also measure uh, fecal bile acids or fecal uh, C4, which can help. Um, some of the clues in the history that might push you towards um, bile acid diarrhea rather than um, IBS with diarrhea is the fact that this disorder can be uh, quite prevalent in, in patients who've, who've had a cholecystectomy. Um, so certainly in the cholecystectomized patient who presents with diarrhea, particularly after surgery, you would maybe think about bile acid uh, diarrhea rather than um, IBS with diarrhea. And clearly you say, well, well why is that distinction uh, important? And I would argue, yes, it is, in that those with bile acid diarrhea often respond very well to bile acid sequestrants, such as cholestyramine or, or cholesevolam. Let's discuss the management of IBS, which can be quite challenging. 
What role do lifestyle and diet have in managing the symptoms? So I think this this really is, is the cornerstone of, of management. I, I would say that actually the, the first and most important um, aspect of management is around patient education. So patients will often uh, come in with a number of preconceived ideas, A, regarding the, the diagnosis uh, itself and its differential diagnosis, and clearly a number of patients will be worried about a uh, an underlying cancer, and you have to really allay those those fears uh, in that patient. Similarly, patient education is also very important in terms of um, educating them as to the nature of the disorder, particularly that symptoms frequently frequently wax wax and wane. Lifestyle management again is is very important in terms of um, stress reduction, looking for triggers that make the, the symptoms worse and, and more bothersome. And really, my view is that difficult to treat IBS should be uh, managed within a multidisciplinary team uh, that would include specialist nurses, dietitians, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists occasionally uh, around to try and improve the, the outcomes in, in, in these patients. Do you find that uh, trigger diaries are useful or particularly helpful in these patients? Yes, they often often are, and and, and there's certainly some triggers that patients um, self-identify. So particularly some dietary triggers, so um, particularly intolerance to wheat and gluten-containing products. Um, clearly, these patients don't necessarily have uh, what we'd refer to as sort of classical celiac disease, but more they have non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity and um, similar comments around lactose containing containing products and pa- patients often find um, going dairy free or reducing their dairy intake in their diet can be can be very very helpful uh, indeed and many primary and secondary care physicians will have heard about the rise of low fodmap diets uh, to treat ibs in recent years uh, what's the current evidence around um, recommending a low FODMAP diet, and what does that mean for the patient? Okay, so FODMAP uh, is is an acronym for fermentable oligodi monosaccharides and and polyols, and these are essentially fermentable uh, carbohydrates that that have a number of effects within within the gut. So the first effect is, is an essentially osmotic effect, so it draws water with into the into the lumen of the bowel they also causes increased uh, intraclonic uh, fermentation which causes gaseous distension of the gut and then combining that with the with the osmotic effect can cause uh, symptoms in in patients so the source of food groups that are high in in fodmap contents would be the legumes or fruits particularly apples and peaches um, garlic onions and, and artificial uh, sweeteners and certainly the, uh, the meta-analytic uh, evidence suggests that uh, diets low in, in FODMAPs uh, can be useful in, in, treating, in treating IBS uh, patients. However, the, the quality of those studies can be somewhat uh, variable. I think it is important to, to be very clear that um, this is a, a dietary intervention that needs to be uh, delivered by a, a registered and trained uh, dietitian. I don't think this is an intervention because it's so difficult to do. Is that um, you shouldn't just give a diet sheet to a patient and, and say get on with it. Um, there is a, a nice study from uh, Magnus Simrons group in in Sweden that shows 
that the low FODMAP diet isn't any more efficacious than the modified uh, National Institute of Health and Care Excellence diet from, from the UK. So again, it's, I think it's choosing the patient wisely in terms of uh, dietary interventions in that actually following a true low FODMAP diet is actually very difficult to do and needs um, dietitian uh, support. So we've talked about the major cornerstone of management being um, advice, stress reduction, uh, and management of lifestyle, along with some potentially very interesting dietary interventions. Is there any role for pharmacological therapy? Um, And if so, should it be guided by symptoms or altogether um, given to the patient? So I think that the, the utility of the Rome 4 criteria is that it does divide patients up into into uh, predominant symptoms. And I think, broadly speaking, one can consider three aspects to those symptoms. So the, there are those symptoms of, of constipation, and yes, that can be managed very effectively with uh, pharmacological therapy, uh, those with diarrhea, and then those with with pain as the as the predominant um, symptom. So if we consider constipation in the in the first instance, I think you you've got a, a number of treatments which can broadly be divided into the simple laxatives versus some of the some of the newer agents. So for example, psyllium ispagula fiber can be can be very useful, and then we have our sort of standard polyethylene glycol based. Uh, uh, os- osmotic uh, laxatives as well as stimulants and, and stool softeners. When one's considering the more advanced treatments, we have two guanolate cyclase C uh, agonists now on the market, namely uh, finlacotide and placanotide. Um, the utility of those two particular agents is that they have a clear and beneficial effect also uh, on, on pain. But Clearly, when, when, as one goes up the treatment uh, pathway, these interventions become uh, more expensive. We also have uh, lubiprostone, which is a, a chloride 2 channel agonist, which again can be useful, but the effect on pain is, is somewhat less. When we consider diarrhea, a good intervention for, for diarrhea is, is loperamide. Loperamide is an opioid uh, uh, agonist um, uh, at the mu opioid uh, receptor, but doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, so it doesn't exert any uh, analgesic effect in the in the central nervous system. But sometimes patients can be quite sensitive to that and, and get sort of rebound um, constipation. So in my own practice in that context, I often use liquid loperamide, as this uh, allows slightly closer uh, titration. Um, also available now is eluxagiline, which is a, a mixed um, mu opioid and kappa uh, receptor agonist and a delta opioid receptor uh, antagonist. And, and certainly the phase three uh, studies have shown that this could be effective in, in treating the diarrhea. It also probably has a pain effect, but is contraindicated in patients who've had a, a previous cholecystectomy because it can cause uh, pancreatitis. Finally, if we just consider uh, pain a little bit, uh, then many of the standard um, uh, antispasmodics such as pinovarium can be can be useful. These are essentially uh, smooth muscle uh, relaxants, which can be u- u- uh, useful in some patients. Um, peppermint oil also has a reasonable evidence base, but some patients get uh, can get reflux with this. 
I think one of my go-to medications in terms of treating pain, particularly in irritable bowel syndrome with, with diarrhea, are the tricyclic antidepressants, so particularly amitriptyline. And these also have the some anticholinergic side effects, which can be useful. So they generally cause some constipation, um, which obviously, if you're trying to treat diarrhea, is is useful itself. And patients also can feel quite sleepy on it. So if the patient is getting nighttime uh, pain, then there can be some uh, utility there. In contrast, um, in the constipated patient with pain, then the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors such as citalopram. Um, can also be be useful as well. Great, and I, and I couldn't let you get away with today without talking about the microbiome. So we know that there's an explosion of research into this field, um, both clinically and, and from a research perspective on, on how we can alter the microbiome to optimize patient outcomes. What's the role for interventions in targeting the microbiome for, for IBS? So again, there are a number of studies out, out there that have um, um, demonstrated that the microbiome of, of the IBS patient is, is probably different uh, to normal. As yet, we're, we're not entirely clear what the most effective intervention is in this context. We have uh, rifaximin, which is a minimally absorbed antibiotic, and, and a number of large placebo-controlled trials has shown symptomatic uh, benefit with this treatment, the sort of numbers needed to treat are approaching um, uh, 11, um, and whether patients need retreatment um, over time is is as yet uh, slightly unclear. Um, there are a number of studies out there that have evaluated the, uh, the role of probiotics, whether that be um, a single strain probiotics or, or multiple strain uh, probiotics has considerable uh, variability in the in the study designs. Generally, I think they are of of some help, and patients can get some benefit uh, from them. And certainly, in in terms of this specific patient, my my general advice to to patients is that you know they can try try this uh, probiotic for for a month or so and see if it helps. But I think if it hasn't helped after that sort of period of time. Um, then it prob- they probably aren't going to help. But certainly something that patients quite like to try because they, they, they see it as a way of, of modulating the uh, microbiota beneficially. And some patients do get a, a good response to these interventions. In your experience, do patients ever experience any major adverse events from trialing probiotics? So by and large, uh, probiotics are, are very, very well tolerated uh, by patients. Um, some patients do get some gas and uh, abdominal bloating with, with probiotics, but by and large, um, they are well tolerated. Thank you for that really useful summary of the uh, currently available treatment options. Your review article also talks about psychological therapies. Can you tell me about those? So as a class of interventions, um, psychological therapies are effective in reducing uh, symptom burden in, in IBS. There's certainly a, a number of uh, specific uh, techniques. So the, the most common ones include cognitive uh, behavioral therapy, dynamic uh, psychotherapy and, uh, and hypnotherapy. Certainly in the UK, one of the, the challenges with these um, interventions, which I do think are, are genuinely uh, very effective is is access to um, specific therapist who has the skill set to deliver these therapies um, effectively. 
but I think if you have a, a therapist uh, that you have um, access to, then then in themselves they can be they can be very uh, good uh, treatments. I think some of the interesting data that's, uh, that's coming out is that self-administered cognitive behavioural therapy could be useful, and certainly um, internet-based cognitive behavioural therapy also has a, an emerging evidence uh, base. So I think it can be a very useful intervention in IBS. I would just point the the listeners to uh, a really excellent review article in Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology in 2013 uh, entitled Psychological Treatments in Functional GI Disorders, a Primer uh, for the Gastroenterologist. And that provides a really useful uh, summary of, of all the available treatments and the evidence. And how do you identify which patient would be best suited for a psychological therapy uh, compared to other therapies you're considering? So really, I think in terms of um, which patients are, are going to, to benefit most, given the resource limitations that, that we're faced with, my, I usually reserve these kind of therapies for, for patients who've been uh, recalcitrant to first or second line drug therapy for between three to three to six months. And certainly also as well, you need to be thinking um, accessing these therapies in, in patients where you feel there's a significant uh, stress or anxiety component um, to, their, to their symptoms and that those patients often respond uh, very well uh, to this type of intervention. You've told us a bit about how self-administered uh, CBT or internet-based CBT, we'll probably see a lot more of that in the future. Are there any more promising treatments or therapies uh, that we think will enter the realm for IBS? Well, there's a very uh, interesting paper that, that was recently published that uh, looks at the addition of uh, dietary uh, glutamine in irritable bowel syndrome. So this was specifically in, in patients who'd had uh, an infection that uh, started their symptoms, so-called post-infective um, IBS, and it was a randomized controlled trial uh, over 12 weeks um, where patients were randomized to placebo or uh, the addition of dietary glutamine at a dose of five grams three times a day. And certainly there were marked uh, improvements in, in um, both abdominal pain and symptom severity scores. And certainly this is a very interesting uh, addition to the armamentarium, but clearly this needs to be uh, replicated in, in, in another center in a larger, larger study. Uh, it's really such a pleasure to have some of your wealth of experience in managing these patients on the CMAJ podcast, so thank you. If you could summarize your top tips or suggestions for primary care physicians and family doctors for how to approach the patient with irritable bowel syndrome, what would you say? So I think first and first and foremost, it's really taking a, a detailed uh, symptom history and really the effect those symptoms have on a patient's quality of life, because I think if a patient feels... Uh, listen to uh, with some empathy. In fact, um, that's half the battle in in my experience. Um, I think you, one needs to also uh, understand and educate the patient uh, in terms of the diagnosis itself. Uh, recurrent um, and repeated and invasive investigations, generally uh, speaking, are, are not required. Um, patients' fears and misconceptions about the natural history of the disorder um, need to be addressed as well, particularly in the sense that symptoms uh, can relapse and remit um, over time. Again, one needs to uh, delineate the difference between 
similar sounding disorders, so IBS versus uh, IBD, so explain to patients that there isn't any inflammation in, in IBS, and similarly uh, concerns that many patients will have uh, around uh, uh, cancer. Um, there's also important to signpost patients to internet resources of, uh, of information, uh, particularly salient uh, for your listeners as the Canadian Society of Intestinal uh, research. I think the problem with uh, a number of um, documents that are that are on the internet regarding IBS is they don't necessarily have the scientific um, and clinical oversight um, that some more trusted resources do. So they would really be my uh, top tips for for managing the the IBS patient. But clearly as well, uh, uh, addressing and treating the the most bothersome uh, symptoms in a, in a rational fashion. Adam, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. I've been speaking with Dr. Adam Farmer. He's a UK-based gastroenterologist, senior lecturer and clinical director of specialised medicine at Royal Stoke University Hospital in Staffordshire, United Kingdom. To read the review article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchloni, Associate Editor for CMHA. Thank you for listening.